This is the best of the Good Advice Podcast, the top 10 best episodes from the last four years of the Good Advice Podcast. Thank you guys for tuning into the podcast, and I hope you enjoy this episode. And don't forget, you can catch our weekly episodes on the Good Advice Podcast on any platform you listen to the show, as well as on our YouTube and LinkedIn pages. Hey, welcome back to another episode of the Good Advice Podcast. Talking today about how do you actually take a business idea, turn it into something sustainable, and then actually scale it into something meaningful. You know, if you've been listening to the podcast long term, you know we have all sorts of guests on the show. You know, we have people on the podcast who all have their own story. Well, today we're sitting down with Jared Mitchell, who's going to be sharing about how did he take his e-commerce brand and grow it to the point where now he's a sought-out expert on e-commerce and really this whole concept of not just being entrepreneurial for the heck of it, but truly offering something that customers love and growing it into something that really you can hit your wagon to and say, yeah, I built that. So today we're going to be talking about his business. We're going to be talking about Skincare by Elena, which is one of the largest online retailers of organic and all natural skincare products. He's also, I mentioned, an e-commerce consultant for Neil Patel and also the founder of Beefy Sites, which is a website that helps e-commerce founders scale up their business. We're going to be talking all about it today. Jared, it's great to have you on the show today. Uh, Thanks so much for having me, Blake. I have been looking forward to this podcast. Excited to be here. Well, it's always a treat to have someone who, you know, I was actually just talking to someone about this morning on how it's it's different to talk about business compared to like someone who's actually built a business and now has like their sort of retrospective insights. So I'm really excited to sit down today and talk to you about really the journey and for our listeners, for them to be able to get some insights on like, okay, what is it, what does it really look like to grow a sustainable business? Now, uh, we mentioned already you're the co-founder of Skincare by Elena, uh, over $30 million in product sales. You've built this thing that is obviously very incredible. Tell me a little bit about yourself. Tell me a little bit about the business. You know, who, who is Jared Mitchell? Sure. The new figure that uh, we just researched is $50 million. I need to update all my stuff. <laughs> and that doesn't include Amazon. Um, we choose not to make those numbers public for a number of reasons. <laughs> But yeah, excited to be here, man. Um, The other thing that makes me unique, one business I forgot to mention to you is that uh, we actually, we we own a skincare brand as well. So one of the weird things about me is that I kind of have experience on different sides of the coin with the agency consulting, you know, online teaching aspect of beefy sites, the retail distribution side, and then also the skincare brand side. Um, in addition to the consulting and work that I've done for Neil Patel. So, um, you know, it, it spurs on, I hope it doesn't sound too braggy or something, but it just helps spur on a lot of conversation, you know, when we, we do these podcasts. I think it's great for the listeners to know that that the person on the show, like what we're talking about today is going to be, it's going to be grounded in real 
real stuff. You know, like you mentioned, you're a bit of a, a unique, I keep, I don't know why I keep calling people ducks where I'm like, you're a unique duck. And then people are like, why did you call me that? But you're a bit of a unique duck in that you, you have done it all. It's not just, um, you know, you didn't like read a book on e-commerce and now you're, you're telling everyone how to do it. You're, you've actually done it. You have your own brand. Uh, as you mentioned, Elena Mitchell.com. Uh, you're also running the, the distribution side of things. Give us the little bit of the backstory here. How did you get into all this? Yeah, it's a really interesting backstory because I used to play music in a band on Interscope Records uh, professionally, and that was going to be my career. Mm -hmm. Um, And we were signed a major label record deal a long time ago. I won't say how long, um, but it was long (laughs) enough that we received a, a nice sum of money. And that was back when the music industry was different and people still purchase CDs. Shortly after we signed, the iPod came out (laughs) and they lost their product. And I'll never forget um, the meeting that we had um, with Jimmy Iovine and Luke Wood. um, Your A&R guy, he's actually going to go start another company with uh, Dr. Dre some headphone company. So <laughs> we lost him to Beats Audio. Uh, and um, from there, the, the music thing just kind of didn't work out. Um, but yeah, so I was left in a position where music wasn't, you know, an option for me moving forward. So I was sort of forced to figure out what to do next. And that was kind of in a time when the economy started sloping as well. My wife, Elena, we both met in college and she had received esthetician training, which is facials, waxing, all that stuff. So she was selling product lines out of her room. I said, hmm, maybe I should build you a website. And I started thinking about that. So I went to Costco because I was surfing like three times a day and had nothing to do. <laughs> um, and they used to have flyers on the side that said how to build a website, you know, like next to air conditioning and vacations. <laughs> So I grabbed one and I went home, I built her a website and I started selling the products that she's retailing in her day spa space over a shopping cart. And that was some, sometime around 15, probably 15 plus years ago. And I just rolled my sleeves up, sleeves up and I figured it out. Let me ask you something, because this is such an interesting story. <laughs> and I, I love stories like this where you describe it so... Um, I don't want to say casually, because because obviously you know you're you're very experienced at the time. You you uh, you knew that you had an opportunity ahead of you, and you thought, yeah, let's jump into this and see where it goes. It's amazing when I talk to people who they tell sort of this casual version of a story of like, yeah, I just I tried this, and I and the reason I'm pointing this out is because we just came out of we're knock on wood we're we're out of a uh, a global pandemic that has totally changed how people do business. And so you were in a in a band where the CD sort of lost its luster, I guess. Which, by the way, my wife and I we were going through like some old storage boxes, and we found her. Um, what's it called? Like the uh, it's not leather, but it's like the cloth bound with like all the discs in it. And you know, you would organize it like based on like your favorites, or maybe alphabetical. But we were like, oh my gosh, this must be worth something. I'm sure it's not worth anything, but we were so amazed because when the iPod came out, you know, obviously no one had that in their car anymore. But so you had this big disruption to your business. And I love how you frame the story of, yeah, I saw another opportunity and jumped into that. Connecting this with COVID, we have people who um, 
their world has been totally changed. And some people, the way they viewed their business is, um, I'm ruined. I have no future. I don't know really what to do now. Mm-hmm. But then there's other people who've really seen either a silver lining or they've just found new opportunities. Do you see any any connection there between your story and like what people are facing right now in terms of, okay, I was doing this and now I can't. And sort of having that mentality, that optimism of, okay, what am I going to do next? I mean, do people need to, do they need to grab like a surfboard and just kind of clear their mind or <laughs> what's the best way for someone to be optimistic and open-minded to that next opportunity, which could be like it was in your case. I mean, it was pivotal. It was the beginning of this really amazing story. Yeah. Has um, anyone talked about jumping the curve or the story of ice at all on your podcast yet, Blake? No, uh-uh. Cool. So this is not credit to me. I was at Google HQ up in LA recently for an event. And um, one of the speakers told this story. And I think it perfectly depicts what's going on right now during COVID. Because if you've been in business as long as like Elaine and I have, you also remember a similar time, I think it was around 06 or 08, when the real estate market completely crashed and the economy was terrible, and a lot of my friends went out of business. Obviously, COVID is a much different scenario. But what I've realized is that we've been able to survive and thrive through both scenarios. Now, what I talk about in reference to COVID, and a lot of you that are struggling, is I want to talk about jumping the curve is the term. So the story of ice is basically people used to harvest ice. If you have daughters, you might have seen Frozen, Blake. Eh? Yeah. So <laughs> I, sh- I shamelessly watched it plenty of times before we had our daughter, but that'll be the reason. I'll, for now, I'll say that's the reason why we watch it. So. Yeah, I think I have like six goddaughters, so uh, I've seen it four times. Sure. You know, harvesting ice, you know, you literally are going out to like Antarctica or whatever, grabbing the ice and bringing it to places so people can think, uh, keep things cool. So that was a big industry for a while, right? Well, then, of course, someone figured out how to make a refrigerator freezer, um, and these ice factories started popping up, and they figured out they could put them in cities like, you know, places like Arizona. And so instead of people needing to go to the Arctic to get ice or wherever, you know, they could go five miles away to the factory and get ice as opposed to, you know, picking it up from the ship or the truck or however it got to them. Okay. The next evolution, of course, was when someone took that ice factory and made it small enough to fit in people's homes. So Mm. refrigeration and freezing. Then the factories, of course, went out if they didn't get into refrigeration. And people can do what they do now and just go over and make a cocktail when they stick their glass underneath the ice maker. And so the story of ice to me is fascinating because you could see how the industry sort of jumped the curve one, two, three times. And who knows what the future is holds for, you know, ice. (laughs) But (laughs) the point is, um, you know, whichever industry you're in, is there like a curve jump going on? I think Hmm. many of us have seen this during COVID. And to be honest, that's something that I have been thinking about a lot lately for the direct-to-consumer channels and the distribution channels that currently exist. How much of this do you think has to do with 
Because, because I mean, everyone, I feel like, I don't say everyone, but on social media, for example, people love, especially in the business world, love to make them seem themselves as um, very business savvy. And so it's like, I found the undiscovered gym and it's because I'm so entrepreneurial. What's interesting is it feels like often there's a bit of luck involved in seeing this, this jumping of the curve happening where that person who's sort of the first one to the scene or the summer, like, for example, I had someone on the show um, would have been a couple of years ago and I called him during COVID because this was so interesting. So he ran a grocery to your door delivery service. This was two or three years ago. Well, it went bankrupt because there just wasn't any demand for it. People just he's like, why would I need that? Why would I do that? And so I was talking to him a few months ago and he was sort of thinking like, oh my gosh, like if I had been running that around this time, I mean, it would, I would have just nailed it. So like the same business expertise, but it was the wrong timing. I think of your story, you know, you're walking through a Costco and out of through sort of just like accidental convenience, huh? Yeah, maybe I should do that. So like, so like in terms of like being innovative and entrepreneurial, how much of it is a genuine, amazing skill and how much of it is just dumb luck and timing? Yeah. I think about that all the time because I've audited like thousands of e-commerce companies, some that were like zero, some that were like billion dollar companies. Right. And when I hear the stories of founders to me, I hear a lot of luck. I really do. Um, because <laughs> and I, I don't know, maybe it's just the companies that I audit, but I feel like, man, and by the way, even my own stories, I feel pretty lucky, but there are some people that have that knowledge of timing mm. and audience and product and branding and offering to like nail it every time. Mm. I personally have never been that guy. I always have to like blood, sweat and tears through stuff, something and require a little bit of luck. Um, but I think what's important for the listeners today to this podcast to know is even if you're feel feeling lucky or unlucky, that's not going to determine the long-term success of your business. Okay. Like you're here now, you're probably listening to this already have product or offer you're already you're probably wondering you know how do i scale this thing how do i get bigger right mm -hmm. so you know for me at the end of the day if, if you can bring uniqueness to your audience if you are finding the right need and filling it to the right audience that has the demand and you're creating a real business a real business, not a fake one. Maybe we'll talk about that later. And you're in a, an industry that you are passionate about. Um, you're going to make it. Mm. I really believe it. Um, one of the biggest problems that I see when I'm auditing companies is guys are like, it's usually guys for a reason. Like, let's just, let's get into this industry and they know nothing about it. And some guys are pretty good at like scaling a company, but it never has staying power. They always like end up selling it, which can be cool. Um, or it just kind of like fizzles away or goes out of business. I don't know. Uh, so let me ask you more about this. Cause I, I, and I love the way you phrase this, this, this unique offer. Um, we talk a lot in the, in the business world about differentiation, you know, how are you different? How do you stand out? You know, whatever your flavor is of that expression. And 
two things I think you said that are really interesting. One, it feels like often people think they're different, like in their mind, like, oh, we're so different. Really, the customer sees something that's totally similar to everything else. And the other thing I love that you said was being immersed in understanding your industry. And it reminded me of, we had a guy on the podcast, uh, we just published this episode recently, but he's one of the last franchise owners of Blockbuster. He was like one of the last ones to survive. And you know, everyone has like their version of Blockbuster. Everyone's an expert on Blockbuster's history, but it was interesting to get his perspective. And he said, you know, honestly, Blake, what was really shocking was the people running Blockbuster really knew not much at all about the video rental business. They didn't, they just didn't really know much about it. Didn't know much about their customers. And I've seen that play out in many places where people don't seem to really know their customers. What's going on there when people, they feel like they have lightning in a bottle and yet customers, they look at it and they're almost indifferent or they're um, just kind of like, yep, that's just like these other five products on the shelves. How does someone really create a product that's different? Yeah, I think there's a couple questions in there. Um, you know how I'd start with this is, um, by the way, I've been, I think they told me I went to the last existing blockbuster brick and mortar store and it's in Bend, Oregon. Did he, did he mention that? Was that right? Or was that a rumor? It's somewhere in the Northwest. I don't remember at all. <laughs> I think that's it. Yeah. Uh, anyways, it was cool um, because I, I grew up in Bend. So, um, and the way he described it, it, it may not have been his store. The way he described it was there was like three or four all in the same region where yeah. Blockbuster corporate was saying, hey, do it this way. And they were like, yeah, we're not doing that. That, that makes zero sense. And so yeah. this, this, select few of stores really did their own thing. And that's what allowed them, even when corporately the business had pretty much fallen apart, it's what allowed them to stay in business several years after the fact. Yeah. 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 That's awesome. Um, so I did consulting for a company once that got into influencer marketing in the beauty space really early. They scaled up to $20 million a year in revenue really quickly, all influencer marketing, no other channels of revenue pretty much. And um, we're talking about listening to customers and being in touch with the customer. Well, I found that they were really in touch with the customer as far as branding and price and product offering. But when I really got into it, because my job was to come in there and obviously help them scale to much larger growth, um, the customers actually didn't know they existed. Hmm. They didn't even know the brand. Um, the way this company was positioning things, their landing pages, their offerings, their branding was there, but they're selling through influencers. So at the end of the day, the customer pretty much had a relationship with the influencer and completely forgot the brand. Like, honestly, I would interview some customers and they'd be like, you know, I'd mention the brand name and they'd be like, I've never heard of that before in my life, <laughs> but you got your beauty product. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah I love that. They thing. Like have it on themselves and they're like using it. And they have no yeah. idea. That's crazy. Do you still follow the influencer XYZ. Oh yeah, man. They're, you know, they're so funny. I love their videos. And so to me, that was fascinating because we live in a day and age where we can so easily listen to our customers. Like, I mean, they've been around for years and no one ever really uses them, but exit surveys are like, you can automate the customer feedback, customer survey, customer experience process now. 
And another way you can that people never do is if you already have had, many of you do, you already have your website live and it's created and it's designed, you got your branding up and it's probably selling some products, some of you more or less than others. Um, and you talk about, oh man, we need to rebrand, redesign our website, okay? <laughs> so this is just so funny to me. So what owners do is they hire like a branding or design team and they give them their ideas for how they can improve it. And they work with this company and they release and launch this new website and new branding um, you know, scheme and colors and logos or whatever. To me, that is so funny. Um, Blake, how many times do you have designed since starting and launching it in the last 15 years? Just ask, guess. Ask that one more time because your video dropped. Oh, sorry. Yeah. How many times over the last 15 years do you think I've rebranded designed website? 15 years. 15 years. Okay. Hang on. I, ha I have your website up. So uh, I'm going to go with my gut here. I'm going to say twice. Yes. Yeah, so I made the mistake of doing it myself once. Thankfully, we lucked out and it didn't hurt our conversion very much. These days, um, our customers redesign our website. Okay. So you've probably heard of split testing, but essentially yeah. I will, uh, and I do have an internal design, designer and a branding team that I use, but they give me variations. And I test three different headers and three different logos and three different hero images. And I let the customer tell me which one they prefer. So for me, growing and scaling your e-commerce business starts with understanding the consumer and how they react to your media and your product and your offering and your price. And it's something that we do in every single step of the, and I think it's great that you brought this up because businesses, that's one of the first things that I have to do because the owners are like forcing themselves onto the customer. And they're like, why can't we scale more? And I'm like, I don't think you actually understand what's going on here. Do you, do you feel like this, this is an issue uh, across like the entrepreneurial landscape, this whole like, and I don't know if we'd call it even ego, but where business business owners say like, this is what the customer wants, but then you talk to the customer and they're like, no, I don't, I don't want that. And I, it, uh, sometimes the way I've heard this phrase, I've heard this phrase is um, I, the Henry Ford quote. Like if I asked the customers basically what they wanted, they would have said faster horses. And so I've heard people say this as like a reason for like, well, the customer doesn't really know what they want, yada, yada, yada. The only problem with this quote is that Henry Ford never actually said it. It's not a real quote. I don't know if you know this. <laughs> and it's for me, it's kind of funny because it seems like a lot of times we try, we try to make our customers dumber than they are, or at least a little less, un, a little less aware of what they actually want. You're saying we should really lean into our customers and let them drive the innovation of our business. Oh, I, I think so, because I'm a big, let's create a real business, a long-term business guy. And it's just my, my personal opinion that there are plenty of dumb customers out there. I just don't see the staying power in those people. They're so easily persuaded by us at this moment, who's take them away. Mm -hmm. I want the smart customers, the ones mm -hmm. that can do the research and figure things out, because to me, Year after year, time after business after business, those are the longest term customers. If you can persuade them, you can keep them. 
Well, something that's, we were talking about the subject of differentiating and like, what's your niche and how do you create sort of this uniqueness factor of your brand? I want to talk about something that it stood out to me at least as a unique factor of your business. And I'm, I think this is intentional. So looking at um, skincare by Elena, uh, I mentioned it's one of the largest online retailers of organic and all natural skincare products, which if I wasn't married, I probably wouldn't think anything of it, but uh, I am married and my wife is actually particularly passionate about all natural organic skincare products. Um, Was this intentional in terms of the niche of your business? Absolutely. I'm huge about starting out. If you're a startup and you are bootstrapping everything like my wife and I, and you don't have Uncle Harry's deep pockets, VC backing you, um, I'm a big fan of starting in a niche. And, you know, I don't want to just start out selling knives. I want to start out selling knives um, to movie fans, um, Rambo knives to like nostalgic movie fans, you know, like I really want to hone in an audience in that niche. And we've since sort of broadened some of the messaging of some of our stores, but on the brand side, I think a lot of you who are listening are probably more brand owners than retailers. Um, there's some products that we sell that I've made with my own hands. Son has made with his own hands. These are patents. You can't really see them actually. I'm going to like raise them up on the wall behind me. Um, we have patented products and that gives us strength because a, we have a unique product offering that we made based on the feedback of our customers. Um, B people technically can't copy us and C I can write off all of the R&D tax credit time, which essentially protects me from paying a lot of Hmm. money in taxes, creating another essentially salary for us as the inventor. It's pretty, it's pretty amazing. (laughs) And, uh, and I I feel like, I feel like today's culture and again, and, and I don't want to, I don't want to, um, discount your expertise in any way. But again, going back to that comment on like timing and the right timing, uh, it, it feels like people are becoming more and more interested and passionate with all natural organic. Uh, in fact, a article last week was published saying that uh, the majority of uh, top makeup brands have toxic forever chemicals that are widespread within them. And for our listeners who don't know what a forever chemical is, it's essentially a chemical that you um, ingest or put on your body that you don't realize actually stays in your body for a significant period of time. So it's, I say all this because what's great about your business is it feels like you've centered on this niche that has only continued to flourish over time. And we can see that in your, in your product sales, you know, in the bio, I mentioned you were at 30, $30 million in product sales. And you said, well, actually I need to update it. We're up to $50 million in product sales, which is, it's no small jump. I mean, that's pretty impressive. Thanks. Yeah. And you know, that goes without saying that we have been testing the messaging over the years and the one that seemed to win to help us scale to where we're at right now is the natural and organic niche where my wife goes through each product and hand selects it. Well, we want to grow more. And so that will continue to be an offering and a niche on our website. What I meant was um, in February, we're opening our own medical spa. That gives us access to many products that we can resell that we haven't had access to in the past. 
And if you know about skincare products, you know that there are medical grade skincare products we are allowed to sell over the counter, but definitely a lot of them are not all natural and organic. So <laughs> they do get into the chemical side because a lot of these ladies say, I don't want organic. You need to make me look like I'm 16 and I don't care what I put on my face or in my body. So to continue to scale, we're kind of going to get into that niche as well. But the point is, we found the right niche, we found the right audience, and we used it to quickly grow our business through that channel. And, you know, we basically did it through a lot of thing and listening to the customer. I, I love this central theme of letting your customers drive the future of your business. And I think it's great advice for all of us. Something else you mentioned that I want to lean into is you talked about really bootstrapping your business and building it into what it is today. And I don't, I haven't asked you yet how long it took before you really felt like, oh, this yeah. is, this is something, this is something, this is cool. But I will say yeah. that in the bootstrapping world, it feels like more and more that people get, they're a bit averse to that conversation of, um, it, let me phrase it a different way. Taking a very cliche example, it feels like many people, they want to create that liquid gold that's immediately going to attract buyers. It's immediately going to attract investors. You know, and even hear people say like, oh, we're the next Uber, we're the next Airbnb, yada, yada. And bootstrapping is kind of like a, oh, yeah, yeah, we, we could do that, but we'd rather, you know, develop our own like lightning in a bottle-esque product. Talk to us a little bit more about this bootstrapping process and really the journey of building your business into something where you were sent, you were able to say, yeah, we've, we've done it. This is something meaningful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's a great question. In, in our case, um, we were able to start with a little bit of money that was left over from signing a record deal, <laughs> but it wasn't much, man. Um, I remember when we ordered our first box of products that we sell, this is before we had our brand. I spent like six or $700 and I was like, oh, that one hurt. And this box came and it was like, you know, maybe like this big <laughs> and like 10 products in it. And I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, um, you know, so for us, um, it was just about being really steady and really watching our financials and our metrics and how much we're spending and how much is coming in. Um, and we also have been, I think, really good over the years at leveraging the tools available through banks and governments and um, all those things that you can use to help yourself scale business. One thing that I usually get into early with clients, many of you that are listening, um, you know, because people get strapped for cash, um, is, well, do you have a line of credit with your bank? <laughs> I don't know why, but like 90% of the people like don't, and a lot of them haven't even heard of this, you know? Mm. So over the years, we've leveraged um, things like that with our bank. And I mentioned earlier, things like uh, tax rebates for inventing products, R&D, um, to help us scale the business. And essentially, we've also, um, there's this kind of um, get rich quick scheme aspect of how people like me sell e-commerce to listeners like you. Mm -hmm. I think it's complete baloney. <laughs> I don't believe in it at all. And, um, you know, certainly you can get lucky and this and that. And there's been moments in my career where I felt lucky. Um, but gosh, you know, 
for us, it's blood, sweat, and tears. It's careful management of finances. And um, there are times where you want to scream and you feel like you might out of business. But if you set yourself up right, you know, with the banks and the credit cards and your financials, yeah. you can easily scale your business up to the sizes of ours and beyond. So this is interesting because, and I love that you mentioned the the other guys that we see online, social media. <laughs> I think I think today it feels like it's harder to be an entrepreneur than ever before because what we're inundated on social media with is the person who says, "Yeah, I mean, it's so easy to become a multimillionaire." You know, for just set up your Shopify website and, you know, send this, run this ad or have this copy. And it's, it's just so simple. And by the way, I'll show you how to do it for a thousand dollars. You know, I mean, it just, it, it feels like we have oversimplified this. And I was just in a conversation with someone about the, about it this morning where I keep having guests like you on the podcast who have made it in the sense of like how, what my listeners would think about in terms of what they want eventually, which is that business that is, it is self-sustaining in the sense of it pays your bills and it, it, it is a um, fuel for the lifestyle that you want. It feels like I keep having people like you on the show who isn't saying, Oh yeah, just send this email to your mailing list and you're going to have the website of your, or the business of your dreams. But who keeps talking about this theme of, hard work, time, um, leaning into your customer and really just understanding that it is blood, sweat, and tears, not, you know, whatever simple way we like to describe it. I don't know. It's very interesting how I keep hearing this. Yeah. I feel like what sold to us is, is if you follow, you know, the entrepreneur scene in social media or, or whatever, um, you're sold this, this dream of, Ferraris or private jets, or I feel like every ad is centered around those. Like a guy sitting in a in a Ferrari, or like a guy like in a private jet. You know, <laughs> I'm just like, okay, uh, that's cool. I mean, a lot of people want those things. I'm sure I do at some point too. I just got back from Hawaii. We were there for two weeks. We did not fly first class, but my whole family was there, and I didn't have to work much while I was there. To me, that's the dream. Okay. So what I get into with people a lot is you've never, ever really feel like you've made it. Mm. Okay. So I know guys who are billionaires and they still work and they'll admit to you, yeah, I should probably retire, but you can always make more. It's just like human nature to not be ever really fulfilled um, by like material things like money. So like, I don't care how much money you will ever make. (laughs) I don't think you're ever going to really feel like you've made it. And this is something that like I struggle with. So one exercise that I talk about a lot on podcasts, uh, and something that really changed my life. Um, I heard at church one Sunday, which is really weird. Um, but I applied it to business and he was talking about Thomas Jefferson, or maybe it was Benjamin Franklin, one of those guys, doesn't really matter. A guy uh, that's noteworthy um, wrote his eulogy and his epitaph by the time he was, it was like 25 or 30. Um, And so I had to Google what eulogy was and what epitaph is. is. And um, one of them goes on your gravestone and one of them's the speech they read at your funeral. Mm -hmm. Like not many of us know this, you know, because you haven't really thought about it. And so I was like, 
and and then the guy said, I'll rewrote it three or four life. So I was like on that path, like scale and make more money, more money, more money. And, and I sat down and it was like years ago, happened to be in Hawaii. We were on vacation and I wrote it out and it nothing to do with money. It had everything to do with what I really wanted, which was to be able to take time with my family, raise a family, um, take time off, have be making money while I was not working, which is another, you know, common theme in the industry. So for me, I've, I've sort of realized what that, that looks like. And I could care less whether I'm in a private plane or a Ferrari. Matter of fact, I kind of don't want to be. I feel like it's a more money, more problems thing. For me, it's the fact that a little 1130 a day, I can break and I can go surfing and come back to work and you know do some more work and have that freedom. Mm. It reminds me of my very first marketer for my business. Very first one. He, we were working together and he said, okay, Blake, I need you to go to the tallest building in your city and rent one of the condos. And basically we're going to design your product with you filming yourself in this condo and implying that it's, it's yours and that you've made it. Yeah. And I remember, I, I remember thinking like, actually, I remember telling him like, that's, that's not me and that's not honest. And he said, yeah. wow, you're really naive because that's what sells. But the more I've talked to people who are in your, your position, the more I've heard, it's less about the Lamborghinis and it's all the more about really diving into what your customers want. And the more passionate you are about solving their problem, the better off your business seems to be. Yeah, I think so. I, I think the real business thing is a big theme for me too. Just making sure that if you're a person, you, you don't have to hire a branding company to write a fake story for you about your brand, that your story can actually be real and genuine. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that does exist. I know I have clients that have hired teams to write a fake story for them of how the brand started, mm -hmm. you know? And so I don't want to discourage you if you're in, you know, a vertical that you don't necessarily have a passion about, that's not like a business killer. You can still do it. I'm just saying, it's a little easier and a little more fun and a little more like enjoyment in life, like as a person or a human being, if you do. I love it. Well, Jared, we are unfortunately out of time today. This has been such a great conversation. I feel like there's so much more to unpack. So we're going to have to have you come on again sometime later in the year. I'd love it, man. Yeah, this is great. Well, for the listeners who have been tuning in, they're thinking, okay, I really, I like this guy. I like what he's talking about. I want to learn more and maybe even buy one of your products. What's the next step? What should people do? Cool. Yeah. Um, if you're, uh, I got a few companies, but if you are like a listener that owns a business or wants to start one, my specialty helps people, you know, create their own business and get their first sale. That's like one niche I'm good at. The second niche is if you've already got a business that's creating sales, helping you scale up to the 20 or 30 million a year mark. After then, I pass you on to uh, bigger and better things. But that's really <laughs> kind of my, my niche. I love it. I love it. And what's the, is that beefysites.com? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, Jared, thanks so much for making time to come on the show today. It's been a real pleasure. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me, Blake.
Hey, for our listeners, I'm going to put the link to beefysites.com down in the episode description below. I'm also going to put uh, elenamitchell.com and skincarebyelena.com down in the episode description below so you can check those things out. And hey, if you've been checking out the podcast and you like what you're listening to, what the heck are you waiting on? Click that subscribe button and click that follow button so you can keep getting good advice wherever you're listening to us at. And hey, don't forget, if you want to support the podcast, even get your business advertised in the podcast, you can go to our Patreon patreon.com slash good advice that's patreon.com slash good advice hey we appreciate you and thanks for tuning in that's this week's good advice we'll catch you later see ya